Do we have any prayer requests this morning? Okay, well, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for bringing us together for this Lord's Day. Lord, we pray that this time would honor you. May we, this day, warm our hearts to come together to worship you. We can only do this by the working of your Holy Spirit within us, Lord. And now we ask that you pour your Holy Spirit upon our lives, Lord, so we may honor you with everything we do and say and think. We pray in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. Okay, so this talk is a talk about Christian giving. I stand here as one probably least qualified to be able to give this talk. Um, I don't stand here as one from the perspective that I've mastered this grace, but I'm a fellow struggler in this materialistic world. So this this talk is not one as do as I do, just me bring God's word and some commentators' thoughts on God's words to encourage you and I in this grace. So Christian giving is both a gift and a discipline. So when we're talking about a spiritual gift, what are we saying? What is a spiritual gift? Well, it's a, it's a grace. It's an act of the Holy Spirit. A more robust definition is a product of the active, communicative, redemptive, divine Holy Spirit wrought love that the New Testament calls grace. A spiritual gift is essentially a pattern of service in a church that, number one, honors Christ. Number two, glorifies God. Number three, strengthens and encourages fellow believers. And number four, imparts strength and maturity to the church as a whole. And so some of these gifts are abilities that go beyond our natural resources and are supernaturally bestowed in and through Christ. These were the gifts that were given to the apostles in the apostolic period. Gifts such as prophecy, with a capital P, healing. These gifts have now ceased. Other gifts are natural abilities that are redirected, sanctified, and activated by the Holy Spirit from within each one of us. In Romans 12, 6, Paul writes, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And he proceeds to give examples of this. He speaks of prophesying, which we would say is preaching God's word, serving, teaching, (coughs) exhorting, exercising leadership. But then in verse 8, he comes to this section, he says, To the one who contributes should do so in generosity. Contributes is a word the Greek that means shares, and certainly refers to the sharing of money as those who have give to the needs for those who do not have. Generosity always carries overturns of trans- overtones of transparent goodwill being expressed. So giving or sharing or using money for God's glory is a spiritual gift. Any questions, comments? But it's also a discipline. Donald Whitney says that discipline without direction is drudgery. So spiritual disciplines are those personal and corporate practices that promote spiritual growth. And whatever the discipline, the most important thing is its purpose. And we're talking about spiritual disciplines. The purpose is what? Godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7 Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So these are God-given means that we are to use in the spirit-filled pursuit 
of godliness. And giving is a discipline of discipleship to the Lord Jesus. Disciplines don't come naturally without effort. They are acquired and sustained habits of thought and or behavior that need constant practice. Christian virtues, of which generosity is one, are disciplines that Christ commends, commands, and models as life qualities that should mark out all his disciples. All spiritual gifts are, from one standpoint, disciplines of discipleship. Any thoughts or comments so far? Questions? Well, Christian giving is also a form of evangelism. Acts 2.47, Acts 2.47, describes the church in Jerusalem as having favor with all people. Now, what exactly were these early Christians doing that brought them such favor? Well, the preceding verse tells us, in verse 45 and 46, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So when unbelievers witnessed the generosity of these believers, they saw how they loved one another. And many came to faith partly through the power and integrity of this refreshing alternative to materialism. In verse 47 it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So their generosity demonstrated the life-changing power of the gospel. While being attracted to the generous giving of Jesus' followers, unbelievers were attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly provides us with every joy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19, Paul makes clear that it is God's will for us to be open-handed givers, generous and rich in good deeds. This passage tells us that through giving, we'll take hold of that which is truly life. The materialistic, self-centered life is not the good life. The true good life is the life of generosity. When we live this way, the world will notice. Yes? I'd like to make two points on sure, Ron. example yes. from this church. Um, because again, it isn't about individuals, it ain't about you, and it's not about, um, but um, Gail Spain, I'll mention him, everybody know who Jan Spain is, but Gail Spain, who is a deacon here at this church, and the, and the guy, <coughs> well, both of them actually, they could see if somebody was in need, don't ask me how they knew or whatever, but they would come and they would talk to people and do things for people behind the scenes, there's no fanfare, no kind of accolades, trying to put themselves forward, get into the spotlight and look what I've done. Um, and and they were, it was consistent, and, they, and it, they did that. It was just a great example of what I think you're exactly talking about. Another time, when we did, when I was, you know, I was unemployed for seven months, um, you know, we didn't have two pennies to rub together, and we couldn't afford to buy steak, yet John Gillis showed up, and he, I am putting his name out there because he's that kind of guy, his whole family, quite frankly. Um, but anyway, they showed up with a, 
a cooler full of steak than their cattle when they were doing beef and stuff like that. We didn't ask for it, didn't, you know, any of that. You know, just God working in their hearts and then them sharing with what they had for some, at that point, we, we, we really were dire straits. And so, um, it's, it's that example, I think, is what this is getting. We, we need to watch and look and see. And, um, and when we see somebody, and the Bible also says if you see your brother who needs a cloak and you don't do anything for them, you know, shame on you. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So I think I just wanted to bring some points out that, you know, the, this is application to uh, exactly how we should be. And um, anyway, it's just awesome things like that, as I think is what that symbolizes. Yes. Thank you, Ron. But how does the world see stuff like that? I'm sorry? How does the world see that kind of industry? They don't. saying, and the Bible says, you know, the world will see the love that everyone Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure the world can see that because they're lost and they're depraved and they're, you know, un, unsaved. And, and so they don't look for those kinds of things. What Harry mentioned before about they're chasing after the next shiny thing. Um, all of that... You know, I gotta have this. I gotta have that. And they try but to fill. The promise that Harry mentioned that we that we read that you know that the world may know. I mean, they, they'll see the love that you have for each other, and and it'll be like a witness to you. Yeah. So there. How does that end up to the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit. Of oh, course. Silly me. In my examples are small stuff, but there's huge, much greater examples. You know, you look at you know all of the different philanthropies that you know this church supports missions and um, the PCA and things that we do, generosity towards other entities, those people that are in need. Um, we uh, you know, they, it's, they see that, and whether they will choose to say that's the working of God or not. It's up to God. But um, there are things for them to see as well. Uh, almost 30 years ago, Wesley and I had been in the former Soviet Union for two and a half years in Minnesville, just north of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And it was a time of immense poverty in that region because the whole economic system had fallen apart. And you see, what was sustaining uh, a lot of basic things in the whole economy was charitable giving coming mostly from the United States and from Germany. Mostly Christians in the U.S. and in Germany were sending in massive amounts of everything, and that was keeping the whole society working. Uh, go to a hospital, where did the medications come from? Either from the U.S. or from Germany, who sent them? Either an American or a German nonprofit Christian organization. It was just the way everything worked there. Everyone who was in Diplomats, I knew the foreign service people, the military people, all knew that. There was nothing hidden about that. The whole society functioned because of the generosity of Christians in the West who had money and were using it to take care of the millions of people there. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that, just real quick. We're getting ready to do something in church that's going to go worldwide. It's Operation Christmas Child. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting ready, you know, we've got a couple months, but I mean, we're, getting, we're going to start putting things together and everything, and these boxes go all over the world. To these, and it means so much to these children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, sometimes it's an actual true blessing that you know the stories can be told. But again, that's another big thing. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good thing. <laughs> so Christian giving is management of whose money? Our money. God's money. Oh, thank you. Our, God's money. 
When we set ourselves to think about Christian money management in whatever connection, from buying groceries to supporting missionaries, to investing in industry, to financing vacation, the first thing we have to get clear is the money that we have to manage is God's money. Yes, we've been given it to use, but it remains His. We have it as a loan, and in due course we must give account to Him to what we have done with it. That is the point of the word stewardship. A steward is someone who an owner entrusts with the managing of his assets. An investment manager is a steward. He has control over his client's assets in one sense, but his job is to understand and implement his client's wishes and priorities regarding their use. In the same way, a trustee is a steward. His or her job is to invest, safeguard, and disperse money in the trust according to the stated purpose of the one who appointed him. So society, which scripture calls the world, sees each person's money as his own possession to use as he or she likes. Scripture, however, sees our money as a trust from God to be used for his glory. In the Holy Communion Liturgy in the Anglican Book of Prayer, the collection is offered to God with these words, All that is in heaven and earth is thine. All things come of thee, and of thine own have we could give thee. And the words are taken from 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 14. This is the constant biblical perspective. The money that is originally thought of as ours remains God's. We receive it from his hands as stewards and trustees and must learn to manage it for his praise. So then when we're discussing Christian giving, it's a ministry with God's money. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So ministry means what? Service. And service means relieving need. A need means a lack of something that one cannot do well without. Paul calls his plan of financial help for the Jerusalem poor the ministry for the saints in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, because the poverty of the poor is denying them necessities of life. And Paul celebrates and set forth as an example the way in which the Macedonian churches have embraced this mode of ministry, ascribing their action directly to the grace of God. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-5. through 5. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So the ministry of giving has many goals. Spreading the gospel... Sustaining the church, as we have discussed. Providing care for distressed individuals. And for distressed groups like the Jerusalem Christians and more. The ministry of giving in all its forms aims to advance the kingdom of God, which becomes reality in human life whenever the values and priorities of Christ's teaching are observed. It goes without saying that in this ministry, God's people are meant to be involved. So Christian giving is a mindset regarding God's money. A mindset or mentality, as we may prefer to call it, is a characteristic attitude. It's a habitual orientation, an entrenched desire, and as such, a matter of motivation and purpose. Our mindset should be oriented to advance God's kingdom with what He has first blessed us with. Christian giving aims at pleasing and glorifying God and never settling for what clearly is second best. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, Jesus tells the story of a servant who, given a talent to use, did nothing with that talent beyond hoarding it till he could return to his master. 
And the words that were used to describe this servant are wicked, slothful, and worthless. When it comes to giving, we should not settle for the okay or the pretty good, or the possibly good enough. But we, we should seek to excel in our stewardship of what God has given us. So to help cultivate this mindset, now we're going to take a look at Paul David Tripp's 10 things that we should know about money. Any questions or comments before we advance? Okay. Oh, yes, yes, please. Yes. What was that quote from Second Chronicles that you quoted from the Anglican Church Prayer? That, uh, all yes. that we have is mine. All that is in the heaven and earth is thine. All things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. And he said that was from? One Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 14. So ten things that we should know about money. Number one, we don't have the right to use our money however we please. The existence that dominates the universe is not ours, but God's. It is this perspective that must shape, or for some of us, reshape the way we think about money. Life is not about our wants, our desires, our dreams, our purposes, expectations, our plans. Life is about God's will, God's purpose, God's pleasure. God's word. We must not and cannot look at money separately from the ultimate reality of life, the existence of God. We are created by God according to his wise design for his wise purpose. Our lives don't belong to us for us to do whatever we please. Because we are created by God, we belong to him. And because our money belongs to God, we don't have the right to use our money however we please. Number two, money points to what rules our hearts. Money is an accurate window into what is truly important to us. It exposes the fact that this side of eternity, it is really hard to hold in our hearts as important what God says is truly important. There's a dangerous tendency in each of our hearts to assign increasing importance to things beyond their true importance. And these things begin to command the thoughts, desires, and allegiance our hearts. If we're humbly willing to look, our desires for and use of money will help us see what is battling for the rulership of our own hearts. Point number three, money can be used to neglect God. So money can function as an ingredient of lifestyle that forgets God's existence and his plan. This lifestyle is more about personal glory than God's glory and reduces one's expenditure of money to personal desire, self-defined need, and the pursuit of individual comfort and pleasure. If we are caught in this lifestyle, we may not theologically deny the existence of God, but our money supports a lifestyle that ignores it. Number four, we're never smarter with our money than God. Every sin dethrones divine wisdom and enthrones human wisdom. So it is with money. Every misuse of money begins with elevating human wisdom over the wisdom of God. Every bit of money trouble begins with assuming that God says, this isn't so bad after all. There's nothing more dangerous to our financial well-being or otherwise, for that matter, anything, than thinking 
that even for an instant that we are smarter than God. Point five, money troubles start within us. It's scarily natural for us to blame the economy, the current president, the size of our paycheck, the advice of someone else, the high cost of things, or someone near to us for the financial troubles in our own lives. It is often sadly easy to convince ourselves that our money trouble is not the result of the thoughts and desires of our own hearts. Question six, point six, image drives our spending. So much of what attracts us to buying what we buy is that we are buying not just a thing, but an image. We buy clothes because they are cool or fashionable, they make us look good. We like a certain car for the image attached to it. We want to live in a certain neighborhood because it has a good image. We don't just pay to go to a beautiful resort location, but we send selfies back to let others know that we are there. We spend so much on things because of what we think of ourselves and what we want others to think of ourselves. But we must not forget the primacy of our identity in Jesus Christ. We are His, and He made us to be who we are. Hey, Harry. Yes. Can we go back to number five for a second? Sure. I think that's a tiny bit, perhaps, of an oversimplification. Like, Ron was just referencing a situation that he and his family went through where they were severely limited in income. Outgo with their big family, deep past what they were bringing in, and that was that was time of great hardship for them. But I wouldn't say that that or many other financial difficulties that people find themselves in are necessarily due to their own sin. They may be opportunities for them to do some reflection and think about divine imperative and divine priorities, but. I think we consider poverty is our fault necessarily. Yeah, I, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah, I would actually strongly disagree with that, that money starts with the trouble within us. Now, I've traveled in several continents where the people were on the edge of starvation. I saw people sleeping on the street, a little boy in Thailand sleeping on the street next to the road because that's the most comfortable place he had to sleep. Uh, this, to say money starts money trouble start within us is something that uh, an upper middle class successful American would say. Not if you're talking to someone in the third world. That's um, just a, an American perspective that works in our circles, but not in most of the Christian world. Yeah, so uh, thank you for that. Definitely want to, don't want to use a blanket statement. I agree with both of you. Um, I think it is applicable to, to a lot of our lives, but not certainly uh, there are circumstances that enter our lives that are not a result of our sin. Absolutely. I think principle five is, and is probably has Matthew 6, 19-24 in mind here as far as uh, the kinds of issues that we might have that would be troublesome to, uh, as far as money is concerned. It has to do with, well, our treasure, you know, where our heart is, there is our treasure. And Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. So many troubles, money troubles, do start within us as a, as a heart issue, but not every right. trouble. Right. Yeah. Ron? Yeah, I just, well, Michael said basically what I was going to say. It really goes back to your previous statement about the heart. And it is, I agree, I mean, I've been in all kinds of, I saw a woman, this is in Iraq, modern day Iraq, I saw 
saw a woman and her two children going through trash trying to find food for the day. I mean, and that's in a, you know, pretty developed country. Anyway, point of the matter is, he goes back to the heart. Your heart is those deceitful of all things. Well, tell us that. That's where sin starts. That's where our ideas start. That's where these things start. That coupled with the Western idea where we're bombarded on a daily basis of buying this, get this, you got to have this image, you got to have this care do, all of those things combined, um, when those two things join together, that sin in the heart and that desire, that's when we start having money troubles when we start buying things that we don't necessarily need to have. You know, and I think that's, you know, I think those two combined, and when you start having those, you start using your money for things that are, you know, for building up a uh, personality or a estate or something, not a state, that's not really a personality, but something you're trying to project, um, then I think we, we've gone astray. There you go. Maybe we can fix five by just adding. We would often do well to ask whether our money troubles have begun with our behavior. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, we can all be okay with that. Okay. Thank you. Rick. Second. I know the thrust of the lesson is about um, uh, us as individuals. So I think that that statement could be true on a societal level. Um, you know, in almost every case, um, when, when you see poverty, like you know, the examples that were mentioned, um, So our money can bless us or can curse us. It can be used as a tool in the hands of, of God of grace or will be a doorway to bad and dangerous things. Like two sides of a physical coin, there are two spiritual sides of money, and each one of those sides calls to you. Each side holds before you a vision and promises. Each side asks not just for the investment of your money, but for the allegiance of your heart. The battle between the two sides of money wages in the heart of every person this side of eternity. Money is a danger. Money is a blessing. What will it be for us? Point eight. Money can remind us of God's grace for us. Money can sit in our hearts as another evidence of the grace of God. Grace so tender and faithful that we continue to experience the blessings even on our worst day. Money is meant to function as an arrow pointing to the goodness and faithfulness of God. And even when money is lean, we are reminded of our dependence upon someone bigger than us and how thankful we should be that we are not alone in those lean circumstances. Point nine, money is a means of blessing. I like this contrast the author brings out here. He says, one, we could either be a container or a conduit. There's a way in which you and I are always viewing ourselves as either a container or a conduit for the money that we are given. Either we want the money to stop with us because we have conceived many ways that will make our life better, easier, or more pleasurable. Or we may think of ourselves as a pipeline and are excited that the money we have has been given to us and we can bless and benefit the lives of others with it. Either our money pays the bills for the kingdom of self or is a God-given tool in our hands for participating in the kingdom of God. And then the last point. Money changes our perspective on eternity. The existence of eternity tells us that since this life is not a destination but a preparation for a final destination, 
We are not meant to use our resources to turn now into much of a as much of a paradise as we can. The reality of eternity also confronts the destination mentality that shapes how so many of us live. The goal of every moment is more than personal happiness. It is to glorify God, and one way we do this is by the Spirit-empowered growth and holiness. So what would it look like in our lives to spend our money with this view? Any thoughts or questions there before we move on to the next session? Yes. Can I suggest that uh, if, if presented properly, what we find in the Christian faith about money can be very attractive to people who are not yet Christians. And, uh, and I'll give you a specific example from my experience. Uh, for four or five years, I was a professor of business ethics in a secular university in Eastern Europe. And the students had all seen the transition from communism to a market economy. And they, I was their business ethics professor. They were Baltimore business students. And so part of what I was doing is trying to figure out how, in a creative way, to bring in portions of the Christian message throughout a semester-long course that related to ethics and business. And uh, I did that sometimes better, sometimes not so well. But the most effective tool I found to do that was a sermon by John Wesley called On the Use of Money. It was one of Wesley's more famous sermons from his time when he was you know, preaching the Great Awakening in the English-speaking world. And I had read that as a student, and I thought, I wonder what these secular students who had some of them a vague Christian background, how would they react to the sermon? So I just included it in the course readings. I wonder what the reaction would be. Great idea. Well, I, I, I was a professor. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was very careful not to make this oppressively Christian, but to make it inspirational way, Christian. Um, so the students read the sermon by John Wesley on the use of money. And there were three points in that sermon. That's a, a whole length sermon, 30 or 40 minutes, but uh, it, uh, and it's well developed. But the three main points are earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Three points of the sermon. And the students from Secular students, mix of atheists, agnostics, many with a vaguely Christian background, found that to be the best reading of the whole semester, the sermon by John Wesley. And they actually would come out of class quoting those three points. Learn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And I was just kind of flabbergasted at that reaction. Because um, it was not what I was expecting at all. And it was uh, just plain fascinating but to see how his sermon was attractive. Finally, they had a reason why they should study business and make money. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Thank you, Michelle. Right? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Yep. <laughs> okay, well, let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. What the love of money really means. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So when you first read it, it doesn't seem like that really could be true, right? It seems as if there are all kinds of things more evil than loving money. <laughs> and on the surface, it doesn't seem that loving money could lead to all other kinds of evils. But let's take a look at the passage. But godliness without contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So if we read these words carefully, we begin to get a clue that the love of money is connected to things much more significant than money itself. Consider the points that Paul makes. In verse 6, the love of money is fundamentally not an overspending problem, it is a contentment problem. Godliness without content is great gain. In verse 7, the love of money is also an identity problem, for we brought nothing into this world. Verse 9, the love of money is a fallen world problem, fallen into temptation. Verse 9 again, the love of money is a worship problem for those who desire to be rich. The root of the love of money runs deeper and wider through the human heart than we tend to think. What, be, what lies beneath the love? Paul begins his discussion with contentment because the root of our problem with money is found here. Discontentment is the soil in which the love of money grows. Discontentment seems to be maybe an inconsequential sin. For most of us, it means little more than wishing we had more. And the only negative aspect of our complaining is that we won't be the life of the party. But the discontented person lacks something more fundamentally in life-shaping than happiness. The discontented person lacks humility. When we are discontent, we think, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We really are convinced that we deserve what we don't actually deserve. When we are discontented, we live as though we are entitled to things that which we are not entitled. And because we feel entitled, we think it is our right to demand them. We can't handle the person next to us having what we can't have. And this discontentment will ultimately bring us into the question of the goodness of God. Discontentment is actually very significant. The lack of humility that fuels discontentment is more about than being a little bit full of ourselves or bragging too much. It's about a heart that's captured by self-glory. When this happens, we turn inward. We've been created to live upward, love for God, and outward, love for neighbor. Discontentment really is making it all about us. It is a lifestyle shaped by the unholy self-love trinity, my wants, my needs, and my feelings. It means that every day is spent in the pursuit of my pleasure, my comfort, my ease. It's me in the center of my world. One of the things that I think that discontentment um, also displays is a lack of faith in God. Because when you have that faith and you are totally trusting in God, then you have the needs are met, whatever they might be, unless you're really dreaming for a beautiful new dress or suit which isn't relevant, right. that faith in God can, can cause contentment. Yes. Even when things aren't going well. Exactly. Yes. Especially when things are going well. Very well said, yes. Perhaps the finest illustration of uh, people that had the worst case of the grumbles would be the wilderness generation. And the, you mentioned lack of faith with discontentment that's consonant with their grumbles was an unbelief 
and a rejection of the redemption that God provided them. And, so, and they were so blinded by their uh, unbelief and their discontented hearts that they yearned to return to a life of slavery, that they might have the you know, food on their table. And they weren't trusting the Lord who provided. And how? Forty years of constant miracles and demonstrations right. See, if God is the center of my world, and I acknowledge that I was created to live for Him, then I look to Him and His grace, what I need to be, and what I was designed to do. But if I'm at the center, it really is about me, and the money exists to fulfill my own desires. So it's worth stressing again that when our happiness is at the center, and the Creator is out of the picture, then we look to creation for our happiness. And when we do that, money becomes a savior that delivers us from all the troubles that we think we have. We are no longer living for God's glory, but obsessed by our own. We daily ask money to save us from the want and discomfort that we view as a principal evil to avoid. So would you not agree that living for self rather than living for God is at the core of all kinds of evil? Well, that is exactly what the love of money is all about. When I, rather than God, are at the center of my world, I have a self-entitled, self-focused, demanding life marked by discontentment that selfishness always produces. Self-glory is at the center of the original sin in the Garden of Eden, and it is the soil on which all sin has grown ever since. Now we're going to move on to the problem of identity. 
So the love of money is connected to forgetting who we are and what life is about. Since we have been created for a life beyond this one, we are hardwired for eternity. It makes no sense to view life as being all about the pleasure, possession, experiences, and power of the moment. If we, if we forget who we are, if we deny what life is truly about, then it will be very hard to keep money in its proper place. We will love it, we will crave it, we will do everything we can to get it, we will be jealous of the person who has more of it, and judge the goodness of God by his willingness to give us more money. So the love of money sits right in the middle of a lifestyle that forgets eternity, lives selfishly, prioritizes the here and the now, and is more focused on physical comfort than on eternal destiny. So how does sin interfere? Well, the love of money is a fallen world problem. The love of money is such a significant issue because we live in a world that doesn't function as God intended. And because it doesn't, it's a place where there is temptation all around us. We cannot get up in the morning without being faced with devious, deceitful, and seductive temptations of some kind, some external, some from within our own hearts. Each day, 10,000 voices whisper in our ear, each calling us away from the life of God. And what is the temptation that Paul takes from Romans 1? It is the temptation to replace worship and service of the Creator with worship and service of the creation. It is attaching our identity and our inner sense of well-being to something in the created order. It is asking creation to give us what only the Creator can, life. So then what do we adore? Ultimately, the love of money is about worship. It's about idolatry. It connects us to the evil of evils. And what is that? The offering, offering the love and adoration and worship and service that we were meant to give to God alone, to something that he created. Love of money is not a little thing. It really is a portal to all kinds of evil because it connects us to foundational, life-shaping issues of the heart, such as contentment and identity, and how we understand and relate to the world we live in eternity and in worship. And if we get these issues wrong, there is no way that we're going to live a life as God intended us to live. Any thoughts or questions there? We'll move on to the last section. This uh, R reminds me of Jerry Bridget in his book, Trust in God. He says, those who trust, who put their trust in their wealth only think they are safe, while those who trust in the Lord are safe. And that's just convicting for me since... Yeah, I might trust these little pieces of green paper for security, but that's foolish because, one, money's only a medium of exchange, so I can't really trust that. In Germany, after World War One, hyperinflation was so bad, there'll be a real bill full of money, and people would steal the real bill and leave the cash, because that's how worthless the currency was. But also, like, trusting money compared to trusting the king of the universe who is for us. How much better is it to trust him? Thank you. Treasures in heaven. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Anyone care to read that? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So here Jesus first lays down a proposition of commandment. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, he tells us that we are so to live in this world as to use everything we have, our gifts, our talents, our time, that we should be laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. This is perhaps the most urgent word that we need at this very moment. The world is so subtle, just as we've been discussing. Worldliness is such a pervasive thing that we are all guilty of it, often without realizing it. We tend to label worldliness as meaning certain particular things only, and always the things which we are not ourselves guilty of. But worldliness really is all-pervasive. It is not confined to certain things. It does not mean going to theaters or cinemas or just doing a few things of that nature. No, worldliness is an attitude towards all of life. It is a general outlook, and it is so subtle that it can come into the most holy things of all. But how do we think of ourselves? Are we here to live our best life now? Or do we instinctively think of ourselves as pilgrims, mere sojourners in this world? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the pleasures of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But why should we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? For this reason, where neither moth nor, nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break in nor steal. Jesus is saying that our worldly treasures do not last. They are transitory, passing, ephemeral. And how true it is. There's an element of decay in all these things, whether we like it or not. Our Lord puts it in terms of the moth and the rust that tend to lodge themselves in these things and destroy them. These things never fully satisfy. There's always something wrong with them. There always will be something wrong with them. We will always lack something. There's no person on earth who is fully satisfied. And they want to sense some may appear to have everything that they desire. Still, they will desire something else. Being created in the image of God means that there's a hole in the human heart that only God can fill. And happiness cannot be purchased. But look at the other side, the positive side, where Jesus says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is wonderful and full of glory. Chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, to 5, with a focus on verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
or Paul in chapter two, uh, in two Corinthians chapter four, verse eighteen: "The things which are not seen are eternal." Now these heavenly things are imperishable, and thieves cannot break in and steal them. And why is that? Because God Himself is reserving them for us. There is no enemy that can ever rob us of them. It is impossible because God Himself is the guardian. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So heaven is the realm of life and light and purity, and nothing belonging to death, nothing tainted or polluted, can gain admission there. It is perfect. And the treasures of the soul and the spirit belong to that realm. Lay them up there, says our Lord, because there is no moth or rust there, and no thief can ever break through or steal. This is an appeal to live with our hearts and our attitudes oriented towards heaven. Do we not see it as we live in this fallen world? Look at the, the daily headlines, the obituaries, all that is happening in our culture. We know that the reality of living in this fallen world but this world is passing away. So why do we lay up treasures on earth when we know what is going to happen to them? And why do we not instead lay up treasures in heaven when we know that there is purity and joy and holiness and everlasting bliss? Well, why? Why do we? Yeah, but beyond that, I mean, what are the, what are the actual motivations well, in Proverbs, it does say that, um, I think it's Proverbs, and I may be wrong, somebody will correct me, I'm sure, but if I'm not, right. But anyway, it says, you know, we're supposed to save, you know, if we, we, we are to save something up to pass on to the next generation. Not said any amount or anything, but it's an idea, it's a concept that we pass this on to our next generation, um, that we should do that. And so, um, and, and I think that's, an option of that thing. It's not living for money. We, we, the Bible tells us about putting up, you know, money for, you know, rainy days, as we say, and things that the Bible doesn't say rainy days, but, you know, for bad times. Um, you know, in the, in the case of uh, Joseph, you know, he, he gave the dream, God gave the dream to Pharaoh. He, they saved up for seven years and for seven years of drought. Um, so, Again, there are reasons to save. There's reasons to save that money. But what Harry's getting after here is, you know, you, in our even the headlines, people that win the lottery in North Carolina and everywhere else, inside of five years they're bankrupt. They're in a, you know, a terrible two double wide trailer or something, whatever. But they don't know how to handle that kind of money. They they spend it all. They don't do that. You know, what I mean, I I was an investment broker dealer for eight years, almost nine years. And one of the things is if, if people have money, they generally know how to handle the money. But if they don't have a lot of money, you give it to them, I'll guarantee you they don't know how to handle it and they will be gone. And so it's a, it's a touchy matter, but, um, but again, you know, you look at all the people, and I've had this conversation with people, I said the only thing that can fill the gap that you're feeling, you can have all the money in the world that will not fill the gap that's in you, right here in your chest. Only Christ can do that, only God can do that, the Holy Spirit. And, uh, because you're, everybody's searching for that. There's something that they're missing, and that's exactly what they're doing. They try to fill it with money, but that's, that doesn't happen. You look at all these movie stars and different people that have committed suicide at a young age, 
because they can't handle that fame and that sports. all of that. It's just it's a it's an epidemic in this country. Uh, you know, some thoughts. One of the things the Bible calls us to do is to provide to our church. And while it, it gives a figure, I, I once asked Josh, um, well, do you count that 10% of your gross or after you pay your bills? And he told me why. I said, he said, I would never cheat God. So that stuck with me for a very, very long time. And what I've found is that I pray before paying our bills because I have done math and I, it would not work out. It would not. But after doing that paying bills, there was always enough money to pay the bills and to help family. So I, I, I'm just trying to share that we trust God and, and do what the Bible says. That He will go after Thank you, Sherry. So Jesus doesn't stop there. His second argument is based on the terrible spiritual danger involved in laying up treasures on earth and not in heaven. The first thing against which he warns is the spiritual sense of the awful grip and power of earthly things upon us. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So again, we're going back to the heart. <laughs> but in verse 24, he also talks about the mind. He says, no one can serve two masters. And we should notice that word, serve. So heart and mind... Jesus is pressing upon us the terrible control that these things tend to exercise over us. It is often very easy for us to identify the sin of others, the sin of the culture around us, but we are often too blinded to the sin from within our own hearts. We are all prone to worldliness, and if we are not aware of it, it can master us. But the last step is the most serious of all. We must remember the way in which these things, we look at these things ultimately determines our relationship to God. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So the truth of this proposition is obvious. Both God and money make a totalitarian demand upon us. Worldly things really do make a totalitarian demand. How they tend to grip the entire personality and affect us everywhere. They demand our devotion. They want us to live for them, Absolutely. And so does God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. Not necessarily in a material sense, but in some sense, other, he does tell us to go sell all that you have and come and follow me. Or he says, he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It is a totalitarian demand of our lives, our affections and our hearts. Notice him again in verse 24, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. There really is either or. A compromise is not possible at this point. So we'll end with this example. And this is an example that Martin Lloyd-Jones gave in his sermon on this text. It's the story of a farmer who one day went happily and with great joy in his heart to report to his wife and family that their best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white. And he said, you know, I have suddenly had a feeling and impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We will bring them up together, and when the time comes, we will sell the one and keep the proceeds, and we will sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. 
His wife asked him, which, was, which one was he going to dedicate to the Lord? And he said, well, there is no need to bother about that now, he replied. We will treat them both in the same way. When a time comes, we will do as I say. And off he went. And in a few months, the man entered his kitchen looking very miserable and unhappy. And when his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, I have bad news to give you. The Lord's calf is dead. Oh. <laughs> but, she said, you had not decided which one was to be the Lord's calf. Oh yes, he said. I had always decided it was to be the white one. And as the white one that has died, the Lord's calf is dead. So we may laugh at that story, but God forbid that we should be laughing at ourselves. Just far too often with ourselves, that is the Lord's calf that dies. When money becomes difficult, the first thing we cut is our contribution to God's work. It is always the first thing to go. But we should not always say, always, for that may be unfair. But with so many of us, it is the first thing. And the things that we really like best are the things that are the last to go. We cannot serve God in money and let every man examine himself.